as Barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together again as family. Thank you for grace and truth. These are the things that set us free, Father, in time. Thank you for giving us these things in the right perspective through the study of your word. Father, thank you for revealing said truth to us in an intimate way in our souls so that we can grab hold of it, Father, and be delivered in time. Father, we do pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning due to illness. And we also pray for those that are still lost in this world, um, that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We do thank you most of all for your son's work on a cross 2,000 years ago to make a morning like this a time to rejoice in, a time to partake in the knowledge that we are co-victors in Christ. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message, and may it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. Um, I want to say thanks again to uh, Scott Grande for listening to the Spirit and teaching a wonderful message on eternal assurance. Just a couple of principles that really stood out to me uh, as a result up here on the board. For starters, on the topic of eternal assurance, contextual, and I love that you included, or the Spirit included, the word contextual, because I think a lot of people read the Bible out of context and get the wrong idea about what the Bible's trying to say. We, uh, if we haven't learned one, if we've learned one thing in the last oh, five years, it's to read the Bible in context. Um, even if you have like a search tool, like I use search tool all the time, like looking for a certain phrase or a certain word or something like that. Uh, and if you have a search tool um, and it returns, say, a single verse, don't just take the verse and read it. Say, okay, that's, that's the verse where this appears, but I'm going to go read the entire chapter. Don't ever do that thing. Always step back and go, and don't be lazy, right? Because that's our, our ten, our, the temptation is to be lazy. Oh, there it is, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know? And we do that. Nobody does that. And we do that thing, right? And we just say, that's the verse I wanted. That's my punchline. That's what I wanted to tell somebody. You know, boom. And it's like, wait a minute. No, you need to back up. Read the whole chapter. I know, I know. It's going to take three minutes. Read the whole chapter to get the context of that thing. So I just appreciate that the Spirit included the word contextual. Contextual biblical teaching from the pulpit, along with daily reading our Bibles, protects us, I should say protects, plural, protects us from the lies of insecurity. Protects us from the lies of insecurity. I love this point because it cuts to the chase. Um, it reminds us that we live in a world that literally, not kind of, but literally, functions on the basis of lies. Do you, do you forget that? Do we forget that? I think we do. I think we sometimes think, well, it's not that bad. 
you know, we walk outside, we have a, quote, good day. The world's being friendly to us. You know, it's not that bad. We don't see all the darkness. We don't see the, you know, we're not having the fiery darts assaulting us, you know, throughout the whole day. And we're like, it's not that bad. It's a lie. It's, a, it's the Matrix, right? If you've ever seen that movie. It's a lie. It's a ubiquitous lie. That's it. And that's how you have to think about the world. It literally functions on the basis of lies. So please don't ever underestimate the power of lies in this world, especially as they affect you personally. That's why we do this thing on a Sunday morning. We want to be built up. We want to be edified uh, in the word of truth. Um, so you have to think about these lies and how they affect you personally. No one hearing my voice this morning is immune to the effects of lies. No one. No one is immune to them. To think otherwise is to immediately prove you have been infected with a lie. In other words, if you miss that, the simple fact that you think you're not affected by the lies of this world is a lie that you have to believe in. Do you understand what I just said? To think you're not affected, that in of itself is a lie, which proves the point. Anyways, food for thought. The Bible clearly tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God in time while here on earth. It's not something to be crushed by. Uh, rather, it's a truth that must be accepted. You have to at least accept it. We all fail. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all are infected by lies. We let them uh, infiltrate our souls. We run with them. Um, it happens. And the humble thing to do is just realize and accept that that happens in our lives. We shouldn't be destroyed by it. Our fervency for the Lord, our fire for the Lord, shouldn't be extinguished as a result. But nonetheless, we have to accept it as truth. We live in a world of lies. We are not of this world, but we are commanded to live in it, um, which means that we will be affected by it. And as the Spirit's taught us so diligently over the past few years, when we are infected, we lose our sense of security. And that's the point. That's where we've been steered over the last... Um, you know, ever since we started this, which was, which was in June of last year, this the Lord is our confidence. Well, what are the things that steer us away from? We have every right. We have a God-given right to be 100% confident in our Lord. Do we not? Of course we do. Then what's the problem? Why are we not? Why does our life prove to us that we're not? Because we're infected. With what? With lies. Some of you are still carrying lies over from previous religions. Religiosity, you know, trying to be impressive to God, trying to be good enough to get into heaven, all that kind of garbage where the merit falls on the person rather than the Lord. So we're infected. And a lot of us just have to sort of, I do this, right? This is what I think about. It's kind of like, ooh, like shake it off, like being filthy, just shaking off mud, you know what I mean? Just filth, just shaking it off. 
And that's sanctification for a lot of us. It's just shaking off the, the vestiges of sin or religion even. So when we are affected or infected by um, lies, we lose our sense of security, which is to say we lose our confidence even. Uh, hence the point on the board. Contextual biblical teaching from the pulpit along with daily reading our Bibles protects us from the lies of insecurity. And here's an analogy, uh, and it's not a perfect analogy, but hopefully it helps drive the point home. If someone told you that their kid is going to college, let's say, um, and the kid is, you know, super driven and smart and well-adjusted, etc., um, you might agree that in four years' time, this fine student will be graduating with a degree and get a job, etc. You kind of see the end, you know, before it's actually done. And while that student, again, is going to college, you may have a great confidence in the end goal. So along the way, you share little moments of encouragement. Can't wait, you know, can't wait, huh, until you get that job. You know, you can't wait until uh, this happens. You can't wait until you graduate. Um, sort of like saying, you know, it won't be long now, and you kind of get excited. Is that end result guaranteed? I mean, really, is it guaranteed? No, not at all. Nope. So you always have the possibility in the back of your mind, like, gee, I, you know, I really hope they pull this off. Why? Because nobody's perfect. People fail at their goals all the time. So while you'd like to celebrate ahead of time, and maybe you do, you know, a little bit of celebrating along the way. Um, there's always doubt. And therefore, some bit of insecurity about the end result. But what if that student were Jesus Christ? What if the student in that example were Jesus Christ? Then you could say that there's no doubt that he'd graduate, right? He'd say, there's no doubt with Jesus, if he said he was going to graduate from college, he would. Do you see the difference, though? It's like that with salvation. We have been promised something from the perfect one, the one who is perfectly capable. In every sense of that word, he's perfectly capable of completing anything he sets out to do. So we, in effect, are able to have 100% confidence that the end goal, we often speak of this theologically as ultimate sanctification, that the end goal is guaranteed, that our assurance, that our eternal assurance is guaranteed, that our salvation will never go up in flames, will never be lost because of the uh, infidelity or the uh, incapability or the inability of our Lord. If he says this is what's going to happen, that's it. His word is truth. 100% set in stone, period, end of day. We can't say that about ourselves, but we can say that about him. 
So we're able to have 100% confidence in the end goal and that it's guaranteed. So what does that guaranteed outcome, even though it hasn't happened yet, what does that guaranteed outcome do to our insecurities? Or what should it do to any insecurities we might have? It should extinguish them right along with all the other fiery darts that the kingdom of darkness shoots in our direction. <clears throat> That's the benefit of, of hearing messages like uh, eternal assurance. So it should extinguish them, right along with any other fiery dart that sows doubt, right? You know, these are lies. You, you know, you, you, you're not worthy. You, you know, you're not, um, you're not really saved. If you don't watch it, you could lose your salvation. If you're not careful, this. If this is, you know, and all these lies, this kind of a thing. We are victors in Christ Jesus, and as believers, we are guaranteed the end result. So, we may begin celebrating right now. That's it. If it was anyone else, we'd be like, mm. right? It's the college example. Jeez, I really hope they graduate. <laughs> I hope it happens. Can't wait to celebrate. Mm, you do this thing. You don't have to cross your fingers with Jesus. Right? You just don't. He says, this is the way it is. I've guaranteed your salvation for all of eternity. If you're a believer, end of story. That's it. So we can start celebrating right now. And the devil does not want you to celebrate because happy Christians tend to be infectious, right? We tend to want to spread the good news. We're invigorated by it. We're motivated by it. Satan doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want you to be excited about the gospel. He wants you to be sort of beaten down, guessing, second guessing. Is this really going to happen for me? Because, you know, I don't know, I was pretty bad in my previous life. We can begin celebrating right now. What's the problem? The problem is that no one has perfect faith. There's a difference between what's actually true and faith in the truth. We don't have perfect faith. Only Jesus had perfect faith. That's the problem. So to whatever degree our faith falters, to that same degree, we suffer insecurity. Instead of having eternal security, eternal assurance, or, or assurance in any of the blessings, peace, contentment, happiness, all these things that he, he promises us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, those things, right? Whatever degree our faith falters, to that same degree we suffer insecurity. Here's the other encouraging principle from part three on eternal assurance up here on the board. Born again and saved. True believers know the Lord. You know if you know the Lord. And knowing the Lord is not just saying you know the Lord. That is a big distinction. I can tell you right now that I would have told you before I was saved. I know there are people hearing my voice right now. Before they were saved, said, yes, I know the Lord. And then they got saved, and then they said, oh, I really didn't know the Lord before. I know him now. I knew of the Lord. If someone asked me, it was the right thing to say, yeah, I know the Lord. Yeah, I know him. 
But did you, quote, know him? Does he, better yet, does he know you? A la Matthew 7, 23. You know, I never knew you. True believers know the Lord. They know who he is and his love and faithfulness and forgiveness. We looked at all these passages this past week. Uh, as opposed to the lawless ones to whom Jesus said, I never knew you. Obviously, he was speaking to them, right? The vision is that he's speaking to them. So it's not like he doesn't know of them. They're right there. But he never knew them. Not that intimate, salvific way, right? In terms of salvation. The Bible teaches us that believers do know Jesus personally. Go to John 10, verse 1. John 10, verse 1. And it's very important because you can gain a lot of encouragement and therefore a lot of confidence in your salvation if you just remember, hey, wait a minute, who are you, kingdom of darkness? Who are you, world, to try to separate me from him? Who are you to lie to my face and get in so doubt in me? So I begin, you know, questioning my relationship with the one that matters most to me. John 10, verse 1. The Bible teaches us that believers do know Jesus personally. 10.1 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. That's the kind of intimacy that we have with our Lord, with our shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. When you read your Bible, if you're saved, you hear his voice. Remember, He is the Word of truth. He is the Word, the Logos. The sheep follow Him, for they know His voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from Him. That's the difference between a true believer in Christ and an unbeliever, or a professing believer that's actually not saved. A professing believer that's actually not saved will follow just about anyone. Because they they've never heard the Lord's voice. You, follow, you see the difference? They've never heard the Lord's voice. So they think it's about a man. They follow men. They make it about the man. They say, oh, look at the bald guy. Look at him with his nice college shirt and his shiny head. And his, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's a pretty good speaker and everything. I'm just going to follow him for a while. And then when they get bored of me or I say something that's completely offensive, boom, gone. They go to the next person, and then the next person, and that's their pattern. Why? Because they've never heard the Lord's voice. So they make it about a man. You see? Has nothing to do with me. I could get run over tomorrow. Do you understand? It has nothing to do with this ridiculous vessel. Nothing. It has to do with this. That's it. 
Doesn't mean I'm not gifted. Come back next Sunday, nobody's here. <laughs> Said it was nothing about you. Right? See you later. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, a true believer, verse 5, they will not follow a stranger, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's what we're doing right now. We're finding pasture. right? I'm an under-shepherd. I lead you to green pastures. We study the Word of God. That's what it means. We go in and out together. And it's a wonderful uh, spiritual dynamic, supernatural dynamic that happens uh, in a place like this. Because you're going in and out and you're, and you're, you're eating, you know, you're, you're, you're grazing, so to speak. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, the Bible teaches us that believers do know Jesus personally. The point on the board, born again and saved, true believers know the Lord. They know who He is and His love and faithfulness and forgiveness, as opposed to those lawless ones to whom Jesus said, I never knew you. I never knew you. And that's not supposed to be discouraging. It should be encouraging. Because if you know the Lord, then presumably the Lord knows you. If you've been encouraged by God the Holy Spirit, read the end of 1 John 3 and the beginning of 1 John 4. It's the Spirit who testifies to us. The Spirit will testify to you and say, yes, you do know the Lord. And that's between you and Him. That's why I can never tell you. I can only give you all the evidence and what the Bible says. I can never tell a person to their face, oh, you are definitely saved, you are definitely not saved. That comes down to you and the Lord. But there's a lot of warnings, aren't there? As well as a lot of encouragement. So you have to weigh those things out. So wonderful, encouraging perspective for all of us to ponder. So thanks again, Scott, for doing your job. Um, okay, we've got to get back to our primary course of study. The Lord is our confidence. We're on part 67. I'm not going to cover uh, any of the following principles in great detail this morning, but it's worth reiterating them for the sake of context to get ourselves resituated. This was the overall curriculum viewpoint that the Spirit put before us. What's He been saying? Well, the Lord is the giver of all things good beginning with life eternal, his life, 
His grace provides us with every ability to obey Him and to love Him. This gives us confidence and affords us the, quote, life is good attitude. The Spirit asked us to ponder this as well. You know, He never lets us off, uh, lets, lets us go with just theology or just doctrine. He says, okay, that's great. So you got the doctrine, you got the theology, but what about your life? I mean, this is supposed to be um, sanctifying, which means that it's supposed to change us, right? It's progressively changing us, which really uh, means that our lives even are going to change. So when you're under pressure, who do you turn to? That was the question. Really just cut to the chase. If you recall, last Sunday we had a major emphasis on the topic of partiality. I used a baking soda analogy as it starves uh, fire of oxygen. Likewise, again, I'm going quickly. These are points of review. Partiality starves our desire to obey God. We want to maybe do the right thing, but we're weak and we become partial. And there are certain areas of each one of our lives where we're partial. More likely, some of you are more likely to be partial in one area and others in another area. Romans 2.11 says that God shows no partiality. That's what we know to be true. So, if we're to be sanctified as unto the Lord, uh, and the Lord is God, then the idea is that this sanctification moves us towards impartiality, away from the things that destroy um, our desire to obey God. So we noted in Matthew 10, 34-39, that Jesus had no reservations about telling the absolute truth about impartiality, even within the family structure. And that tends to be one of the final frontiers, let's call it. Right? Tends to be one of the final frontiers for most of us. We don't always like to apply the Word of God directly to our family members. We always have this like little pocket over here. Right? It's like, there's everybody and how we treat them based on the word of truth. And then there's our family. And that little division that we make is unholy. That's what Jesus said. That little thing, that little room we make, just because it's our kid or our parent or our favorite uncle or whatever it's going to be. Do you know what I'm getting at? That little thing that we do is unholy. It's not from God. And therefore, anything not from God cannot be good. In fact, anything that's not from God is actually a sin. Especially when we know better. And sin leads to death. Spiritual death. Even for we believers, which means we move back towards the things, the, the bondage, the insecurity, the things that lead away from all the good things that God has, you know, quote, the market cornered on. It leads us away from that. And that's what he's been saying. That's what he's been saying even within the family. So this last frontier, it's a real sticky point for people. But it's a real indicator of where you're at spiritually. Right? I didn't say this. this is, these are Jesus' words. And the person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's not Pastor Ed. That is Jesus Christ. Those are his words. 
since Jesus had no problem doing this, and remember, Jesus had a family too that he was very close with. It's not like he was just, you know, in, you know uh, impervious to, to temptation. So if he had no problem making, you know, uh, you know, making no lines in the sand, then we ought not either. That's the point. Because that's what perfection looks like. And that's the end goal of sanctification, is impartiality. Okay? Oh, by the way, my head is itchy. Can you guys see these things? Yeah, that's... I put some new... Uh, uh, engine mounts in my car. And all I kept doing was standing up right into like these sheet, sheet metal things. And they just kept gouging my head. And the funny thing, I was like, la, 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 who cares? <laughs> so my two boys are like, Dad, that's not how you are ever when you're working on a car. Anyway, so I apologize, and I, but it's itchy and it made me think. I got like a few of them, right? Anyways, I digress. Since Jesus had no problem doing this, we ought not either. That's the point. There should be no line in the sand. There shouldn't be any, um, how do you say, uh, partiality. Duh. Melissa, you know, you don't say, you sit there quietly all day, and then I make a mistake, and you're like, oh, you tell me. It takes a little thing that sets us free from partiality called, you ready? Integrity. Integrity. And obviously the integrity of my app. Oh, no, it's still holding on. Integrity. In order to judge those closest to us. This is that critical point, right? Uh, you know, everybody else is kind of like a, a continuum. Ah, oh, not too bad. Not, not, not too hot. Uncle Jimmy, you know, but uh-oh, that's my kid. That's my daughter you're talking about. That's my son you're talking about. No, 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 no. Let's back down. No. Jesus said no. No. Integrity is integrity. Truth is truth. End of story. You either have it or you don't. You either judge with integrity the way Jesus did or you're failing. You're sinning. And that thing you're doing, this is, it's not about condemnation. I hope you're hearing my voice. It's not about condemnation. It's about sowing death. When you sow sin, you sow death because sin leads to death, right? When you sow sin, you're sowing death. Not even in, maybe even in your own life, but you're encouraging it in the life of the one you're so-called thinking you're protecting. The one you're claiming you're, you're pouring your love out on. And Jesus is like, mm-mm. Don't work like that. I'll take care of the details, thank you very much. I'm the creator here, not you. You didn't create your baby, contrary to popular belief in this world. Ladies, sorry. Right? I created that child. That's mine. He's mine. She's mine. Period. End of story. I will take care of the details. You do your job. Your job is to function with integrity. You don't have the right to draw lines in the sand and say, well, I'm going to give special provision because it's my kid or it's my favorite uncle, or my favorite person. No, 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 no. Jesus had no problem. We're not supposed to have any problem. And that takes a little thing called integrity. Integrity. A great litmus test for partiality is, when under said pressure, where do your loyalties lie? Up here on the board. 
Who are you more loyal to, Jesus or family and loved ones? That's the question that came out last Sunday. Where do your loyalties lie? The last two weeks' blogs build this up, up here on the board. I hope you've been reading these things. These things are just not because I've written them, honest to goodness. They're awesome. They're, they're beautiful. They edify these messages in every way. Two weeks ago, every circumstance in life is a spiritual one. And then this past week, the beauty of submission. Fantastic blogs. And if you look, quote-unquote, if you look closely at what's been coming from this ministry, the Spirit's saying the same things to us over and over, just from different angles into the same rosebush, right? Here's the principal truth that we've been sort of hovering around, right? The Lord is our confidence, these kinds of things. And he's just saying, he's just sort of dancing around with us and saying, I'm just saying the same thing, but maybe if I give you this perspective, you know that, you know, someone might have, you know, 10% of you might have an aha moment when I teach this angle. Then we swing it around, and then 25% of you get an aha moment when we're over in this angle. We swing it around some more, and the rest of you are over here. Same rosebush, same truth, right? But it, the, the application principles, the experiences are different. Go to uh, Deuteronomy 4.24. We'll see why he's doing this. Deuteronomy 4.24. Deuteronomy 4, 24. <clears throat> For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Oh, yeah, a jealous God. That's your God. How about go to Deuteronomy 5, 9. Deuteronomy 5.9 You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I'm a jealous God. How about Deuteronomy 6.15? Deuteronomy 6.15 For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. A jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So the truth is, we have a jealous God. And just so you know, this is not a weakness. This is not our kind of jealousy. <laughs> just so you don't get this wrong, what is meant here is that he doesn't want our loyalties to be anywhere else except with him. That's what it means. That's what jealousy means when it, we apply it to God. He doesn't want our loyalties to be anywhere else except with him. That's it. Family, no family, loved ones, no lo does not matter. Loyalties with him. Otherwise, he's going to have a problem with you. See? Jesus stated this very clearly. Go to Luke 14.27. Luke 14.27. So if God says, you know, I've saved you. This is what I want for you. I have a purpose for you now, you see? Read your Bible, you'll find it. And when you find it, 
accept it. Okay? And if that means you have to judge rightly in, the, in your home, then so be it. So be it. Right? Jesus said, Luke 14, 27. Luke 14, 27 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay. If you're, let's just say, and we're going to get into this in a moment again. I, and, uh, let's just say um, you are a parent. Well, kids are born in the flesh, which means they can do nothing that's pleasing to the Lord. That's what Holy Scripture says, because their, their uh, motivation is, is wrong. They're not spiritual yet. They don't even understand. Tammy and I are talking about this. She's a teacher, as you, most of you know. There's two ways to get kids to do stuff. Two, right? Either positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement. In other words, you can say, hey, Johnny, you did good. Keep doing that, right? That's positive reinforcement. When they do something that's appropriate after the rules of the system, you say, good job, keep doing that. Negative is, hey, you broke the law, you're going to get punished. It's the only way. So if you really think about a child... It's the only reason they ever do anything before they're saved. They're either seeing some benefit or they're avoiding some punishment. Do you follow? That's the human flesh. So don't think your kid's all spiritual because they're a good kid, because they do good things. Little Johnny, oh, that's my kid, you know, he's doing good things. He's just saving his own hide. That's the human flesh. The human flesh is self-preserving. Right? That's it. That's those little, those are the little kids before they're saved. It's the only reason they ever do anything that's impressive to you. It has nothing to do with Jesus or love for Jesus or anything else. That's what separates an unbeliever with a believer. We're on a different, we transcend all that. We say, I want to do what's pleasing to the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to make things happen in your life that could never happen based on those kinds of reinforcement. So if you're a parent, let's say, it's hard, right? It's hard. Those little kids, they're little... Right? Which is why if you don't do your job as a parent by giving them the rules, it's not that those rules are bad, you get little monsters. And the rest of society has to deal with it. Right? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I didn't say that. If it means you have to have, you know, wrestling matches with your kids, then so be it. Wrangle with them to whatever degree is necessary. Your job is to raise children up in the faith, as a believer anyways. So, it's fair to say that the Spirit's having me deliver this message because you all need to hear it. Which angle of the rose bush applies to you? I don't know. I have ideas, but that's between you and the Lord. But all I know is a message like this, he ordained it. You are all here. You need to hear it. Why? Because we're all guilty of partiality to some degree. We're all guilty of it. Every last one of us is guilty of it. Our way out of this temptation is to apply the Word of God with integrity, the lens of Christ, to every, every circumstance in life. That's what it means to bear your cross, after all. 
every circumstance in life up here on the board. So avoiding the trap, if we are to apply the lens of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the very mind of Christ to life itself, the very last thing we want to do is be partial. Partiality just might be one of the greatest destructive forces of all in our lives. We already discussed this. It, it sows death because it's a sin. It's the last thing we want to do, but it's one of the great temptations. And it's one of the things, if you look around at our society, isn't that what, we, isn't that what society tells us to do? Make excuses for ourselves, our loved ones. It's all about, you know, protecting our own, this kind of thing. It's not about integrity. It's about preserving self and self-interests. It's very different than what Jesus said. Jesus said, hey, listen, here's, here it is. Here's the yardstick. Use this always. Let the chips fall where they may. If someone doesn't like you because you tell them the truth, hey, listen, leave that up to me. Last Sunday, we considered the area of parenting to drive this point home up here on the board. Partiality debilitates children. Partiality with children is bad parenting. Uh, there's just no getting around it. It sets a child up for a life of disappointment. In other words, failed expectations that the weak parent instills in their kids. It's also an affront to the Lord, the one rightful Savior in this world. See, I think, I think I'm not judging, but I think it's easy to become a parent that thinks they wear a cape. I'll save you. Take the S and put an E on it. E for enablement. I'll enable you. No. That's an affront to the Lord, the one rightful Savior in this world. Parents who show partiality injure their own children, the ones they love the most. That's not love for them. It's love for self. Now, integrity to the Word of God is what parents are called to bestow on their children even. We cannot compromise the truth. We cannot compromise the truth and call it love like so many selfish people do nowadays. Jesus said you have to bear your own cross, right? Again, if your cross is to have a brat for a child, Jesus said, I gave you that kid, here's your test. You can either do it with integrity or you can do it with impartiality. You can sow goodness or you can sow death. This is what I've given you. So we cannot compromise the truth and call it love like so many selfish people do. And side note, when I use the term selfish, because was, some of you probably have a knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, that's a little strong. I'm not being mean. I'm just being honest. And I'm not saying that people are trying to be selfish per se. It's just that from God's perspective, it's true. You're not thinking about, it's like when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on the big picture. Your mind is on earthly things, you see? Oh, but my kid's in pain. Good. Good. That's what they need to get down on their knees, because obviously they haven't gotten here yet, with your help. You got your arms under their armpits, like... Why is that not funny? Your old parents are like, I don't like where this is going at all. I thought we were finished with this last Sunday. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm a parent too. And I'm very imperfect. 
So it's not about judging you. This is about setting you free. It's about setting you free. When you enable a child, you're being selfish. It's about you. It's not about them. Think about it. You might object to my saying that, but it's absolutely true. If you truly love another person more than yourself, you'd sacrifice yourself for them by giving them the unadulterated truth. It's not sacrificial to give a kid a hundred bucks. It's sacrificial sometimes to say, no, I will not give you a hundred bucks. Get off your ridiculous butt and get a job. Go dig a ditch. Right? Go do something useful with your life. Stop mooching. Stop sucking the... You follow what I'm getting at? Those are hard lessons. That's what love looks like because that's what truth says. The Bible says a person should work. If they don't work, they shouldn't eat. It says a person should work quietly as unto themselves to feed themselves and their family, etc., etc. That's what the word of truth says. This isn't about me and you. It's about the truth. It's about you being set free because Jesus said the truth will set you free. Is the truth a big pill to swallow? Sometimes. Sometimes you'd like, you'd like to point at the bald guy with a scarred up head and laugh at him. <laughs> but here's what I have. Galatians 4.16, have, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You want to make it about me, really? You want to be petty? You want to make this about me? It's not about me. I haven't said anything that isn't truth this morning. Right? For example, if a child refuses to accept the truth from a parent, then so be it. We just read in Holy Scripture that God is a jealous God, and He isn't about to tolerate a parent who harms one of His children and calls it love. That's a ruse. Up here on the board, Romans 8, 7, the Amplified, that is because the mind of the flesh with its carnal thoughts and purposes is hostile to God, for it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The child should never be leading a godly parent. You follow? Because they are of the flesh, especially when they're little. You know what I'm talking about. Say before salvation. Mm -mm. But today's society has put all the, like the, the, the power almost in the, in the child. The child has all the rights. We can't even barely discipline our kids anymore for fear of being prosecuted. Right? So some of you are those very parents that I speak of for the sake of illustration. But here's some encouragement from Holy Scripture. Luke 10, 16, the New Living Translation. Then he said to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God, who sent me. If anyone rejects the truth that you give them, just remember the words of Jesus. They are not rejecting you. So there's no reason for you to fret. I know it's hard when someone's spitting venom at you, especially someone that you love. But who's our loyal? Where, is our, where are our loyalties? And what's the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is they don't, they don't like what Jesus has to say about them. They don't like what the truth, when light is shined into that, the recesses of their own motivation, they don't like what they see. 
And so they uh, deflect it. Or they, they reject it and they deflect it back to you, right? Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. You've seen that before. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 in the Amplified Classic, Therefore, whoever disregards, sets aside and rejects this, disregards not man, but God, whose very spirit whom he gives to you is holy, chaste, and pure. So if you're acting with, this is the beauty of integrity. If you always act with integrity, let's say, the beauty is you can go right to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I did what I, I, did what I was supposed to do. He will say, yes, you did. But they hate me. I know. But they hated me first. This is what's supposed to happen, do you see? If you give them my truth, they're going to reject it. So you don't take issue with it. You say, all right, I guess that's what I'm, I guess that's what I should, I'm supposed to expect, right? Is the human flesh is so gross that it hates the truth, right? The light came in the world and the darkness hated it. Right? So that's how it goes. That's the point. One last point of review for, on this topic of parenting and partiality. And trust me, I know it's a difficult topic because we've all failed in this area. Sowing darkness in children to whatever degree a parent shows partiality to their children, to that same degree they are not exercising godly love, but rather fleshly love, which is tantamount to sin, which, as I've been saying, brings forth death. James 1.15 show partiality toward your child actually ushers in death. You don't get the blessings. You're hurting them. You're hurting yourself. You're offending God. Just tell them the truth. If they have a problem with you, hey, guess what? Join the club. Now you've become a little enemy of your own kid. They'll get over it, hopefully. But at least you did the right thing. That's what integrity is. At least you did the right thing. Does that make sense? You did the right thing. And that's where faith comes in. You mean to tell me, Lord, if I do the right thing, you're going to have my back? Yes, I promise I will have your back. But what about my kid? What about your kid? I created him, not you. You don't think I can handle your kid? You think I need your help? You think I need your intervention? No, I, want, I need you to give them the truth. And that's it. That's doing your job but they hate me. So be it. It's terrible. But what do you want for them? And just so no one, none of us think this message is about par parenting proper, it really isn't, by the way. It's just that example that everybody can relate to. It's not about parenting. Here are some other areas of weakness that we can all relate to. Parenting, of course, or any family relation at work with those of influence, uh, towards self when it's time to give, let's say, uh, towards others willing to feed your flesh, and the list goes on and on. There's all, there's all kinds of areas of weakness when it comes to partiality. We show partiality in all parts of life. Partiality, by the way, also is a communicable disease. It tends to spread quickly, right? If we're both willing in a little microcosm, some scenario, if we're both willing to uh, compromise on the truth, see what I'm saying? Or if I'm completely compromised and you're weak, what's probably going to happen? You're going to join me. You weren't, but then because I'm completely weak, 
you might, you, you're very likely to join me if you're, I mean, if you're weak, you know what I'm saying? If I'm over in La La Land, ship of fools, right? Ship of fools. And you get a gang of people together. Happens in churches. Whole churches are put together with a ship of fools. They're all like, oh, yeah, this is great. We're all, you know, yay, Jesus. But there's, you know, a lack of integrity or partiality or there's all kinds of things going on in the church that shouldn't be going on in the church. And everybody's going, oh, I don't see anything. There's all kinds of awfulness going on, even behind the pulpit. Even behind the pulpit where people should be ripped from their post or should have never been put there in the first place if they're the wrong gender. All that kind of garbage, ho-hum. No, we're just going to overlook it. No. No. Integrity. What does the Bible say? Anyways. If partiality is a disease, integrity is its killer. Up here on the board, partiality is a thief. We want to live a life of peace and contentment. We've got to live a life of integrity. That is Jesus' impeccable example to us. To allow partiality into our thinking is to be robbed of our eyesight. Clouds our vision. Our ability to see it all is truth. Up here on the board, Ephesians 5, 13 and 14, part A. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. That's the beauty of truth. It shines light. You see it all as truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's our starting point. And in humility, we accept what we see. And we don't color it. Do you know what I'm saying? We don't go, okay, this is what it looks like with the lens of the Word of God on it. And then we reach in our back pocket and take out a little marker. And we start coloring in the warts. <laughs> see, my kid was really ugly, but now they're not so ugly. Right? I'm going to color in all the warts. No, don't do that thing. Tell the kid, hey, listen. And I apologize if you have warts. Hey, listen. You know what I'm saying? Listen. You've got this, you got this, you got this, you got that. Can we just start here? This is the truth. The truth shall set you free. This is how we ended up with this enduring principle in our studies as of late up here on the board. Every circumstance in life is a spiritual one. Every circumstance in life is a spiritual one. This is why the spirits had us keep coming back to go to 1 John 4.1. 1 John 4.1. We keep coming back here. It's fantastic. It's grounding us, right? It's revealing to us why the curriculum's been the way it has been. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. Here's where we ended last Sunday, up here on the board. Integrity to truth. If every circumstance in life is a spiritual one, and it is, then shouldn't we be testing every spirit by default? Or do we not test these ones because they exist in our children? Or they exist in a loved one? Do we, do we stop the testing? Do we, do we put the rest of the world under the, under the scrutiny of the word of truth, but not those that we're partial to? I'm going to say that's a, that's a recipe for disaster, is it not? 
If you want to end up leading away from freedom, that's the way to do it. Stop testing the spirits. Start acting with partiality. Every circumstance in life is a spiritual one, which means also practically that everything in life falls under this, the precepts of the Bible. There's not, oh, there's my spiritual life, and then there's the rest of my life. That does, that's a lie. There's only one truth, one life, right? I think I'm even, one body, one spirit, one baptism, right? That's it. That's what the Spirit's saying. Every circumstance in life is a spiritual one. We shouldn't be test. Oh, we should be testing every spirit by default. We don't want to only see a part of the truth. For example, counterfeit spirits will speak some truth to gain our trust. We want to see all of it and accept it with integrity. If we don't, something as insidious as partiality can easily entangle us. That's what he's been saying. Last Sunday morning, uh, actually, this might have been two Sunday mornings ago, I can't remember. Uh, the Spirit pointed out that some spirits encourage us to make excuses for ourselves or others. For example, this, came, this was definitely two, two Sundays ago. Uh, don't make excuses. Uh, loneliness is never an excuse for turning to evil things or allowing evil thoughts to fester and manifest, ultimately in sin. I'm lonely. Um, so God, what, screwed up when he made your life the way he made it? I mean, what are we saying here? You're lonely, so what? God, what, forgot about you? Forgot to bring in a, a friend for you? I mean, what, what are you suggesting when you're moaning about being so-called lonely? What about Paul? Was he lonely, you think, when he had to go away for years? I mean, even at the start of his ministry. What about anybody in the Bible who was out in the wilderness? You think maybe, just maybe, I'm just saying, between you and the Lord, maybe, just maybe, you're in the wilderness because you need to be there? Because you cannot be trusted anywhere else? That as soon as you get around people, you uh, fail? You think maybe, just maybe, your mind is weak in a certain area? That is, if you weren't in the wilderness, you'd be like this. Jesus who? I'm just saying. Right? Or maybe just maybe it's more noble than that. Maybe just maybe he says, I'm just going to take away all the distractions because I have a certain thing I need you to do. I need you to learn this certain thing. And I need all of your attention for an extended period of time. Three years? I can't even go three minutes. Right? Maybe I'll make three days. That's a good stretch for me. Read your Bible. Some of these people were put out for years in the wilderness. Not minutes, not days, not weeks, not months. Years. Because that's what God needed to do in their life. And so when you... When you say, oh, I'm lonely, and I'm you're rejecting God's will in your life. You're rejecting something. I can't answer that for you. But I can tell you that the, the, the whining that comes with these kinds of things, um, that's something you have to, to pray on. 
But I'll tell you this, James 1, 12 and 16, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. So if, if it's the case where you're so-called lonely, read 2 Timothy 4, where Paul was utterly abandoned at the end of his life. This was at the beginning, or this was at the end of his ministry even. He was utterly abandoned. By world standards, and some of yours even, Paul would have been pretty darn lonely. But here's how he responded up here on the board. 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He said, everybody, pretty much everybody left me. <laughs> here I am, jail. Everybody, nobody came to my defense. All my friends, who I evangelized, by the way, nobody even came. Um, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that... Through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then, of course, what about another example of so-called good cause for loneliness? How about that? Answer this before I close. Was Jesus alone on his cross? Was he in pain? Was he under pressure? Was having, or what was, oh, excuse me, what was happening on the cross? Was it a physical or a spiritual event? primarily? Was it physical or spiritual? Go to Luke 14.27. Luke 14.27. Was he alone? Was he in pain? Was he under pressure? What was happening on the cross? Was it primarily a physical or spiritual event? So there you have it. You can answer all those for yourselves by now, I'm sure. There you have it. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here's my question. Are you in pain at times? Are you lonely sometimes, quote unquote? Is that cross lonely sometimes? Are you under pressure? Is bearing your cross primarily a physical or spiritual event? Is it an earthly or a heavenly event? Is bearing your cross an earthly, a temporal, a physical thing? Or is it heavenly? Is it spiritual? Is it eternal? Up here on the board, every circumstance in life is a spiritual one. I hope you get it. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for treating us with integrity. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then 
your will be done out to a world that is just passing away. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.